Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So just how do they get the figs at the fig rolls? Transporter? Dr. Crusher's magical elixir? Huh. I'm Sean Ferrick for Trek Culture, and here are the 10 Star Trek questions that always confused you. Number 10. Why didn't Voyager fly home in a straight line? One of the most common questions that are posed about Star Trek Voyager and the crew's journey home is why didn't the ship simply fly home in a straight line? Losing all of the detours along the way, couldn't the ship have saved itself a lot of time and effort? In the Star Trek canon, the centre of the galaxy is a little bit of an oddity. Star Trek V The Final Frontier shows the Enterprise A simply nipping over there and back no problem. Despite this, the film still takes the time to say that all ships that attempt to traverse the Great Barrier end up destroyed. The Enterprise promptly flies through it without so much as a bump. However, by the time Voyager began, airing, this element of Trek history had been quietly swept under the rug. The Galactic Centre became a far larger and far more distant destination, which scratches that from Voyager's path. Could the ship not then have set course for the Gamma Quadrant and used the Bajoran wormhole to get home? Now that question has yet to receive a satisfying answer, but there is most probably a case of not wanting to cross the streams going on here. Number 9. Why was the Kelvin Enterprise larger than a Galaxy-class starship? One of the biggest criticisms that Star Trek 2009 received was that it sacrificed nuance for spectacle. While time is slightly kinder on the film as a whole, there are still several questions that remain. Why, for example, is the Constitution-class Enterprise so large? In canon, the original Enterprise was a fraction of the size of Picard's Enterprise D. However, the Kelvin ship is both longer and almost as powerful. The arrival of the Narada, Nero's mining ship for the Prime Universe, changed everything for Starfleet. The USS Kelvin encountered the ship as it arrived, suffering heavy losses in mere moments. Even the suicide run that George Kirk set the ship on didn't destroy the more advanced vessel. Therefore, back at Utopia Planitia, plans for the fleet were suddenly thrown into disarray. The rollout of new classes of vessels were switched up, with the new Constitution class being one of the biggest changes. What had originally been designed as purely a vessel of exploration was now armed to the teeth. Quite aside from this, the ship swelled to encompass the new technology that was rushed into production. The final product was evocative of its Prime Universe counterpart, though it was significantly beaten up to deal with the new threats that this galaxy faced. Number 8. Why didn't the Enterprise just send a shuttle to save Sulu? This is the one entry on this list that will discuss a purely behind-the-scenes reason, as there is a separate list for that. But in this first season episode of the original series, The Enemy Within, Sulu is stranded on a planet where the temperature is dropping rapidly. If he remains there for much longer, he will surely die. However, they can't use the transporter to bring him up, as it's created an evil clone of Kirk. Not only is a shuttle not sent to save him, but it's never even discussed as an option. There's a simple reason for this, they didn't have a shuttle to work with yet. While the Enterprise had been designed by Matt 
Matt Jeffries to have a shuttle bay, Desilu Studios was not about to commission building a shuttle on the off chance that it would be used in the show. Therefore, when it came to this episode, using the shuttle simply wasn't an option. Thankfully, Gene Roddenberry found a way around this several episodes later. He specifically wrote scenes based on a shuttle so that the prop department would have to build at least the shell of one, adding an excellent element to the show and condemning poor Sulu to always having been forgotten on that damn planet. Number seven. Are the prophets actually gods? Star Trek is at its best when it's asking the big questions of the universe. There are many examples littered throughout the franchise, yet Star Trek Deep Space Nine wore one of these questions on its sleeve for the full seven year run. What actually are the prophets? Are they gods or are they simply aliens? In a very real sense, both answers are correct. When Sisko and Dax encounter them in the wormhole in Emissary, they are beings who exist outside of linear time. Though they communicate openly with Sisko, they send Dax away, while hiding Dukat's warship to prevent anyone else from entering their home. For the Bajorans, the appearance of the wormhole is confirmation of the legend of the Celestial Temple. The belief system that the Vedics and the Kais have built is based on adherence to trust rather than responses from the prophets themselves. However, the biggest example of their godlike status comes in the sixth season episode Sacrifice of Angels. Here, they directly interfere for the second time in Bajoran history. A Dominion Warfleet is banished to parts unknown, though they inform Sisko that there will be a price for this. Is it not the true nature of a god to take payment? Number six. What's under a Breen's helmet? As far as we know, only one character in Star Trek has ever seen what's under a Breen's helmet. That person is the ever-loving badass that is Kira Norris. The reason for this is that in two episodes, she wore the outfits of two Breen that she overcame, Indiscretion in Season 4 and What You Leave Behind in Season 7. This means that, by definition, she has seen the faces of their owners. However, in Season 7, Worf states clearly that no one has ever seen what's under a Breen's helmet and lived. And while the TV series has never confirmed anything on what's under them, the novel series has. The Typhon Pact series of novels features an entire story that sees Bashir and Serena Douglas infiltrate the Breen. It's revealed that the Breen wear uniformly shaped helmets to hide the fact that they are not, in fact, one species. They're similar to the Zindi in that there are several disparate variants of them all living under the Breen title. This is vaguely groundbreaking in Star Trek. Thanks to budgetary issues, many inhabitants of the Alpha Quadrant all look like they've come out of the same melting pot, while the Breen are proof to the opposite. They are, in fact, proof that, despite the limits of a TV budget, the bands of imagination have no such barrier. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Number five. Does the Dyson Sphere actually work? 
In Star Trek The Next Generation episode Relics, the USS Enterprise discovers Montgomery Scott suspended in transporter animation aboard the USS Genolan. His ship had crash-landed on a Dyson Sphere, a massive construct that engulfed an entire star. The sphere was identified by Captain Picard as a device designed by real-world physicist Freeman Dyson. So, would the Dyson Sphere actually work? First, what was it designed to do? The power of a living star is such that, if it could be properly harnessed, a civilization could exist with almost infinite levels of power. The interior of the sphere was large enough to encompass 250 million M-class planets, allowing for billions of people to enjoy the benefits. The size of the sphere was such that it was roughly the same diameter as Earth's orbit around Sol. However, Freeman Dyson, having watched the episode, stated that while he truly enjoyed it as a piece of cinema, he found the science behind it to be nonsense. He then stated that his original theory had been a joke, further crediting writer Olaf Stapledon for the idea. Stapledon's 1937 novel Star Maker had introduced the construct on which Dyson based his theory. Unfortunately, the sphere looks to be a totally fictional idea for now, although a highly enjoyable one at that. Number four, what exactly is the warp speed limit? In Star Trek Voyager, the audience was treated to one of the most bizarre episodes in the canon. Threshold depicted Tom Paris breaking the warp 10 barrier, traveling so fast that he was said to occupy every inch of the universe at once. While that is quite the jump from warp 9.9, what exactly do these numbers mean? And more importantly, why was the original Enterprise able to reach speeds far higher? Gene Roddenberry, by the time that Star Trek The Next Generation was in production, had decided that warp 10 was infinite velocity. However, this was based on a new warp scale for ships of the 24th century. In the 23rd century, the Enterprise, the Orions and more all travelled at speeds that were higher than warp 10. Spock even comments in Journey to Babel that the Orions travel at this speed as the captains do not care about the crew. The warp scale was designed when Starfleet entered a new period of heavy crew. The Excelsior, having been fitted with a transwarp drive, was among the first to receive this new scale, while the Ambassador and Galaxy classes adhered to the revised speeds. All good things, however, seems to operate on a system all of its own. Number three. Picard's French accent is a bit interesting. The character of Jean-Luc Picard was born in Le Bar, France. Now, while his French nationality comes into play in Star Trek Picard slightly more than it does in Star Trek The Next Generation, his speaking voice was decidedly not French accented. That is, of course, because one does not make Sir Patrick Stewart alter his voice if one can help it. During the casting process, Stewart was taped attempting a slight French lilt to his voice, though he and everybody else felt that it sounded ridiculous. It wasn't the French accent itself that was the problem, it was Stewart. The episode Stardust City Rag is a good indicator of what he would have sounded like for the duration of the next generation and all can agree that this would not have worked. So rather than drop this aspect of the character altogether, his accent was just quietly ignored. With his French heritage remaining firmly in place, Jean-Luc and Robert were the sons of Maurice and Yvette Picard. The family owned a vineyard and he was the first of them to blast off into space. He defended the French language when he could, including an incident when Data described it as a dead language. Number two, why does a starship have a night shift? The night shift aboard a starship was so named because, rather than following a typical day-to-night pattern, which doesn't exist in space, it described the period of time in which the ship conducted fewer tasks. While this could be changed on a whim, such as when the USS Excalibur was attacked by the Borg during the night shift, it was generally preceding the so-called day shift. Night shift was usually crewed by junior officers, though oftentimes the senior officers could be assigned to supervisory roles. Lieutenant Commander Data often commanded the night shift on the Enterprise D, as he had no need of sleep. On the other hand, Dr. Crusher often volunteered to do so as it gave her a chance to stretch her command skills from time to time. A four-shift routine was instigated by Captain Jellico, though this was quickly removed once he left the ship. On Deep Space Nine, a four-shift rotation was far more successful, with Major Kira commenting that it allowed officers far more flexibility in their working hours. This, in turn, led to less fatigue on shift. While there was no night in space, these night shifts gave the various crews a little break in the day, 
Borg attacks notwithstanding. Number one, why don't the Borg just send a fleet after Earth? This is a question that's puzzled some fans almost since the first appearance of the Borg, but perhaps more important since the release of Star Trek First Contact. If Starfleet is able to repel a single cube, why not send more than one? The Borg have vast armadas of ships to spare, so what could it hurt? Quora user John Boomershine has posited that there is a very good reason for this. Federation space by 2367 was, though a bit ill-defined, somewhere near 11% of the Milky Way galaxy. Though it could be significantly less than that, this represents the amount of the galaxy explored by the Federation at this time. This does not take into account the Klingon and Romulan empires of the Beta Quadrant, which technically stand between the Borg and the Federation. Assuming that Wolf 359 and the Battle of Sector 001 represent single head-on attacks by the Borg, Boomershine suggests that smaller ships were constantly nipping away at the Federation. This could go away to explain in Picard's line in First Contact. They invade our space and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds and we fall back. No world has been shown fully assimilated in the Alpha Quadrant as described here, which suggests that there are other incursions occurring without being depicted. This of course not including Earth in Star Trek First Contact as that was reset. If this theory is a fact, then the Borg are actually a far more prescient threat to the Alpha Quadrant than the audience truly understood. Why don't they send an armada to destroy Earth? Simply put, they don't need to. 